This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on Christ in the Old Testament. Our scripture reading today is taken from the book of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech and his wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrates from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, and one, one named Orpha and the other named Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Mahlon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had came to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters in the law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. When Naomi said to her two daughters-in-laws, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, and as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me, may the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpha kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung on to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you will go, I will go. Where you will stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you will die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. This is the word of the Lord. 
God of eternity, by the power of your spirit, speak your word to us this day, that hearing we may know your truth and live ever more faithfully for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I have to congratulate myself on my scheduling of this series because it falls very nicely that we are meditating on the book of Ruth today in this series on Christ in the Old Testament. We're talking about Ruth today as we're in the midst of the season of Advent because there is no more Adventy book in the Old Testament than the book of Ruth. And there's some interesting similarities, of course, with the Christmas story, or in that story too, a woman of low social standing arrives from far away into the little town of Bethlehem and by divine intervention gives birth to a baby boy whose joyful arrival heralds the coming of Israel's king. Ruth is just a lovely little book. You could almost describe Ruth as a romantic comedy because there is this movement in the book from famine to fullness, from death with which the book begins to the new life with which it completes, from despair to joy. In fact, we could describe this romantic comedy as a play in four acts corresponding to the four chapters of the book. In the first act, which Elizabeth read for us, it begins that in the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. The days of the judges, if you might recall from talking about that book a couple weeks ago, was a time of violence, of anarchy, of social upheaval. And there's been a famine and this little family from the town of Bethlehem, which ironically means house of bread, are forced to leave and head 50 or 100 miles east to the land of Moab to live for a little while just so that they can survive. But there's a rapid series of tragedies. First, the husband of the family dies, and then both sons. And the widow Naomi is left with two widowed and childless daughters-in-law. This is a bad situation because Naomi is left without a husband and without sons in a patriarchal world that is not safe or friendly to women who are alone. And she is alone. She's in a strange land. She's vulnerable and her family is about to die out entirely. But a rumor has come to the land of Moab, the news that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. There's now food back in the house of bread. And Naomi decides, you know what? It's time to end this expat lifestyle. It's time to go back home to my people. And she heads back on the road to Judah with her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, accompanying her. But then she stops and says, my daughters, you must go no further. Judah is no place for you. There's no future for you. And they're very devoted to her and they start crying. And through their tears, she makes her depressing argument with persuasive, brutal logic. There's no future for them in Israel. And it's not like Naomi is about to provide new husbands for them. The responsible thing to do is for both these women to turn back to Moab, to their people, to their families, to their gods. And she makes good sense. And Orpah kisses her mother-in-law goodbye and she heads back. And Orpah is not condemned in this story. She's a good daughter-in-law and she's not a bad person for parting ways now. It's the sensible and expected thing to do. 
But the other sister-in-law, Ruth, clings to Naomi and refuses to let her go. And she insists on going with her mother-in-law, even when Naomi tells her for a third time to go back to her people and to her gods. It's clear that Ruth loves Naomi with a very deep and a very determined love. And she's obviously very concerned with how this older woman is going to provide for herself, how she's going to take care of herself. And so Ruth insists on remaining with her. Where you go, I will go. Wherever you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. It's a beautiful expression of loyalty that we love to quote, but it is a costly one because Ruth is now heading towards an unknown future where there's no promise of happiness, no guarantee of security, no promise of anything for her except struggle and poverty. And now Naomi falls silent. It's clear that Ruth is a determined woman. This is a woman of iron, and there's nothing her mother-in-law can do to dissuade her, no matter how foolish she thinks Ruth is being, so she silently acquiesces. And when Naomi arrives in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley season, her arrival causes a stir in this sleepy agricultural town. There's a buzz, and the women all exclaim to each other, is this Naomi who's returned to us? But Naomi is different 10 years later. She's come back a fragile woman. She's been broken by life. She's been shattered by her experiences. And she tells the ladies, stop calling me Naomi, which means sweet. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has made my life bitter. He has brought misfortune on me. This is a woman who's angry at God. She says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. It's a key sentence in the book. Because the recurring theme in Ruth is how God fills up the emptiness in Naomi's life. But she doesn't perceive that now. All she sees is she's come back empty. And really, those words must have hurt Ruth to hear. Because Naomi's speech shows that she's blind to this remarkable woman that God has provided her with. Naomi doesn't even mention Ruth. She's talking about coming back empty, but she fails to account for the gift of Ruth in her life, a gift she completely undervalues, that she probably perceives as a burden and another source of stress. But Ruth is soon going to show that she is a woman of worth. In the second act of this play, in chapter 2, Naomi is so depressed and dispirited that Ruth is the one who has to seize the initiative. She's not the kind of woman to sit around and feel sorry for herself and slowly starve to death. As we'll see, Ruth is a strong and a determined woman. She tells her mother-in-law, you stay here if you want. I'm going to go out and I'm going to pick up the leftover grain behind the reapers as they harvest. Ruth has clearly learned something about the Old Testament gleaning laws. According to the law of God that he gave to his people in the Old Testament, farmers When they harvested, were not allowed to harvest to the very edge of their property. They had to leave the margins. And as they were collecting, if any stocks fell from their bundles to the ground, they had to leave them on the ground. They were not allowed to pick them up. In Israel's economy, producers were forbidden from absolutely maximizing their profits. 
they had to leave something there for the poor of the land, the widows, the orphans, the foreign migrant workers to come and pick up. It was this divinely inspired social safety net, but it wasn't a handout. It was offering a means of production to the marginalized, one that required exertion from the needy person. Gleaning was hard work, and this is what Ruth is doing. And the field that she just so happens to wander into belongs to a certain man named Boaz. It's one of the many just so happened in the Bible where it's clearly evident from our perspective that God is secretly at work in this woman's life. In the middle of the day, Boaz comes down from the town of Bethlehem into the fields to see how the harvest is going. The Lord be with you, he greets the harvesters. The Lord bless you, they respond. And Boaz's language clues us in immediately to the kind of person he is. This is a man with the name of the Lord resting on his lips and in his heart. And as he talks with his manager, he sees that while everyone else is working, there's a strange woman who's resting in the little shelter, the little building that offered shade for the workers. And he asks his overseer, who is this person? Who is this woman? And the overseer explains, this is the Moabite woman who came back with Naomi. And she's actually been working hard from the morning until now. And so Boaz saunters over and strikes up a conversation with Ruth. My daughter, he says, listen to me. That address, by the way, calling Ruth his daughter, suggests that Boaz is probably quite a bit older than Ruth. Perhaps he's a widower himself. This is not going to be a conventional romance with beautiful, gorgeous young people. There's something different going on here. And Boaz tells Ruth, he says, my daughter, from now on, don't go to any other field to glean. Don't wander beyond the boundary stone. Please just stay here right here in my field. Stay close to my young woman. Watch where they're harvesting and follow them. And don't worry about a thing. I've given orders to my servants not to harass you. And when you feel thirsty, feel free to go and drink from the water buckets that the servants have filled. This is very generous, attentive treatment of a vulnerable foreigner who has no one to stand up for her. And what Boaz is offering is not just charity, but hospitality. Do you notice how he's pulling her into his little community? He's offering this lonely person not just security, but identity. Please don't wander away. Think of yourself as one of us now. You're part of my team. You're part of my little family here. Please stay with us. And Ruth is overwhelmed by this kind treatment, and she bows down with her face on the ground and asks Boaz, why are you treating a foreigner like me this way? And Boaz tells her, I know everything you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I heard, I've heard how you left your father and mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. Oh yes, Boaz has heard about Ruth. And everything he's heard about this woman's character has impressed him, foreigner though she be. And then Boaz blesses her and he says, May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. This is not just pious jibber-jabber. Boaz is expressing to Ruth his deeply held personal theology. That the Lord of Israel is worthy of trust. And that he never fails to rescue those who look to him for help. And this is the experience that he wishes upon this Moabite woman. And then he invites her, please come Share in the meal with the harvesters. Don't sit there by yourself. He invites her to have some bread, to dip it in the vinegar, along with the rest of them, to eat some of the roasted grain. 
And Ruth, the narrative tells us, eats all that she wanted. And I expect she was a hungry woman and she had some left over, which she carefully wraps up to take back to her mother-in-law later that evening. And as she gets up to glean and heads to the field, Boaz takes his men aside and he gives them some special orders regarding her. He says, look, let her gather right among the sheaves without stopping her. Not just on the margins of the field, right there among the sheaves. And even pull, please just pull out some heads of barley from the bundles and drop them on purpose for her. Let her pick them up and don't give her a hard time. In the Hebrew Old Testament, the book of Ruth does not appear between Judges and 1 Samuel like it does in the Christian Bible. It was bound with a set of five scrolls, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Ruth, Esther, and Lamentations. And each of those little scrolls was linked to a different festival where it was read out loud to the people of Israel. We could have done it ourselves today. It would have taken us maybe 13 or 14 minutes to read this entire book. The book of Ruth was linked to the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, the Harvest Festival, which makes sense in this book. That feast was also traditionally the celebration of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. And I wonder if perhaps it was chosen for that purpose because Boaz is the man above all men in the Old Testament who shows what it means to live out not just the letter of the law, but its spirit. This man is going well beyond the bare minimum set out in the law of Moses. He's entering into the very heart of God for the vulnerable and the needy. Well, Ruth put in a long day's work from dawn to dusk. And as the night falls, she threshes out the stalks she's collected. And she's got an ephah worth of grain, which is a huge amount, about the size of one of those heavy bags of dog food. This is what this woman is carting back to town, this massive sack of grain to Naomi. And she dumps it on the ground in front of her. And as if that wasn't enough, she pulls out from her pocket, oh, here's some roasted grain, by the way, a little lunch that I saved for you. And Naomi is very surprised at this enormous haul. And immediately asks Ruth, okay, tell me, whose field did you gather this from? Someone's obviously been very, very generous. Ruth says the man's name was um, Boaz. Ah, the Lord bless him, Naomi says to her daughter-in-law. God has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. God has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. And what we're witnessing here is the beginning of a renewal of faith in Naomi. When Ruth had left in the morning, her mother-in-law had stayed behind, broken, depressed, bitter, at the God who'd made her life empty. And now here in the evening is this sign of fullness in the form of a sack of food so heavy that her daughter-in-law can barely lift it. And Naomi cannot help but interpret this gift as a sign of the kindness of God. She recognizes, in fact, that God has never stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead, however better she had felt yesterday. And then she adds a detail that Ruth had not known. That man, Boaz, is one of our close relatives. He's one of our kinsmen redeemers. You have to understand the complicated Old Testament property laws. In the land of Israel, all the land belonged to God, and it was given to families in perpetuity. And there were provisions there to make sure that the wealthy did not take advantage and start collecting all the lands for themselves. So 
When a family fell into debt, fell into poverty, when they had exhausted every other option, they might be forced to sell their possessions, to sell their precious plot of land, and even to sell their own bodies into slavery to survive. Well, in such a case, according to the Old Testament law, there was someone, a senior member of the family, known as the kinsman redeemer, and there was the responsibility of this person to rescue you from your predicament, even if it was your fault. So your mom would write an urgent letter to her older brother, and Uncle George would come down from the city in his big car with a big wad of cash. And first he'd go, and he'd buy your family's freedom out of slavery. Then he'd go down to the bank, he'd get your house out of foreclosure, give you the title deed back. And finally, he'd drive down to the pawn shop and ask you to point out your furniture and your tools so that he could redeem those too. And acting as the kinsman redeemer was an expensive honor for Uncle George. But it was an opportunity to use his resources with which God had blessed him to demonstrate kindness, to show his duty of care to his less fortunate relatives, and to make sure that the whole family was taken care of. And for a kinsman redeemer to refuse his obligation, to keep his wallet closed, to not show up when his family members needed help, would bring shame down on his head in front of the whole community. So Naomi is clearly wondering about Boaz filling this role, not only in terms of buying her dead husband's land back, but also as a potential husband for Ruth. And maybe Boaz was starting to wonder this too. But like so many men in a similar situation, he makes no move. And now precious weeks are gone. The harvest is almost over. And there's no longer going to be this constant daily contact between Ruth and Boaz. It's time for action. And if the men are a little slow, the women are going to have to step up and move the story along. And so Naomi sits her, her, her daughter down for a frank talk and says, Ruth, my daughter, it's time that I found a permanent home for you so that you will be provided for. Look, Boaz is a close relative of ours, and he's been very kind by letting you gather grain with his young woman. And here's the plan. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Now do as I tell you. Take a bath, put on perfume, and dress in your nicest clothes. This is not the time for the black widow's outfit. Then, go to the threshing floor. Don't let Boaz see you until he's finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down there, and he'll tell you what to do. Now, this is a pretty bold line of attack and hardly socially appropriate because what Naomi's suggesting, this is not how, how nice girls conventionally act, but it's what is needed to be done to push Boaz into action. Now, Ruth and Boaz are both godly people. Nothing untoward happens, but it's, it's a risque situation. There's definitely some sexual tension in this story. And so Ruth goes and does what her mother suggests which must have taken a fair amount of bravery. And in the middle of the night, Boaz is startled to wake up, and he realizes in the pitch darkness, there's a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He hisses. I'm your servant, Ruth, she replies. And then she goes on to say something that her mother-in-law never instructed her to say. Spread the corner of your covering over me. For you are my family redeemer. This is very direct 
speech. You know, Ruth might be in poverty. She might be a foreigner and a hated Moabite at that. She might be a woman. She has the courage to come out, just to come right out and propose marriage to Boaz. Boaz is startled, and you can even sense in his words that he's nervous and fumbling himself, but he says, the Lord bless you, my daughter. You are showing even more kindness now than you did before, for you've not gone after a younger man, whether rich or poor. Apparently, there were other much more attractive marital options for Ruth. Now he says, don't worry about a thing, my daughter. I will do what is necessary, for everyone in town knows that you are a virtuous woman. She's a woman of worth. The very words that are, that are used to describe the Proverbs 31 woman. You are a virtuous woman. But while it is true that I am one of your family redeemers, there is another man who's more closely related to you than I am. So stay here tonight. In the morning, I will talk to him. If he's willing to redeem you very well, let him marry you. But if he's not willing, then as surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem you myself. Now lie down here at my feet until morning. And in the morning, with the sun barely glimmering on the horizon, he sends Ruth out. He's very anxious that no one sees her. She's already risked her reputation enough, but he doesn't let her go before loading her down with another massive bundle of grain for her mother-in-law. And now that Boaz is finally in motion, he moves. He moves quickly and decisively. He heads straight towards the city gate, and he assembles the elders and this other more senior relative for some legal business. In the story, the other kinsman is only named as Mr. So-and-so. His name is withheld from the story. His name would have been recorded had he himself acted more decisively, but he's blanked in the story. And the kinsman is eager to buy up the piece of land since Naomi has no heirs, and so this piece of land is going to revert to him and his family permanently. But then Boaz announces that he's decided to marry Ruth. I'm going by one of the alternative readings, by the way. Boaz says, I've decided to marry Ruth. And suddenly the piece of land is not quite so attractive because Ruth is likely to produce an heir who will then have the right to claim the property back. So Mr. So-and-so, he backs out of the deal and Boaz formalizes not only his purchase of the family land, but also his acquisition of a new bride. The narrator tells us, So Boaz took Ruth into his home, and she became his wife. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. And then the woman of the town, the female chorus in the romantic comedy, say to Naomi, Praise the Lord, who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and is worth more to you than seven sons. You know, we read this book as a love story and there's this beautiful love between Boaz and Ruth. But actually, the only time that anyone is said to love anyone else in this book is describing Ruth's love for her mother-in-law. This, by the way, is an absolutely unique book in ancient literature in describing female friendship. And it's remarkable that the woman tell Naomi, your daughter, whom you considered part of your emptiness and as a burden to you, is worth more than seven sons. 
a remarkable statement in a patriarchal society. This woman, this woman of gold is worth more than seven sons. You know, God has indeed brought Naomi and her family from famine to fullness, from death to new life, from despair to hope. And the little infant Naomi holds in her arms at the end of the book is the proof that her faithful God has filled up all the emptiness in her life. And then there's a short epilogue. It's a genealogy showing that Boaz was the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. David, the very last word of this book. You know, it turns out that everything that God has been working in this little family, in this little town, in this little pastoral setting, God has been quietly working to raise up a great king for the whole nation, a king we will encounter in the next book we study, First Samuel, the great king David. It's interesting that this genealogy at the end of Ruth, these 10 names that are listed, are picked up at the very beginning of the New Testament. The Gospel of Matthew takes that genealogy and extends it another 28 generations. We go from Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother is Ruth, all the way down the line to Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus, who's called the Messiah. Amazingly, this Moabite woman, Ruth, this outsider and foreigner, who could so easily have turned back to her homeland with her sister, and no one would have judged her, by her sacrificial decision to go with her mother to Bethlehem, she has interjected herself into salvation history and onto the family tree of the world's Messiah. In fact, Ruth's own story is the gospel in miniature, because the gospel is also a romantic comedy that goes from emptiness to fullness, from death to new life, from despair to joy, as the kinsman redeemer rescues his bride and provides her with love, security, and fruitfulness. You know, that whole peculiar role of the kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament was no accident. It was something that God himself had penned into the law with his finger to give us a picture of what Christ was going to do when he came. The kinsman redeemer was responsible for buying, for redeeming, for buying his poor relations out of debt, poverty, and slavery. And he fulfilled this obligation, even if those relatives had gotten themselves into trouble through their own bad decisions and poor judgment. It was not the job of the kinsman redeemer to stop and blame and chastise and rebuke people for their bad decisions. He stepped into rescue because he was operating out of family loyalty, out of kindness. Kindness is one of the key words in this book. Ruth shows kindness to Naomi. Boaz shows kindness to Ruth. And God shows kindness to everybody in the story. That word is sometimes translated in the Bible as loving kindness or steadfast love. It's one of the great Old Testament words, and it means a lot more than any English translation can really bring out. Barry Webb says that kindness here, and this is so good, kindness is essentially acceptance of the duty of care involved in covenanted relationships, especially those of marriage and family. Let me say that again. Kindness is essentially acceptance of the duty of care involved in covenanted relationships, especially marriage and family. 
This is not about petting cats on the street or giving candy to strange children. This is about living up to your relational obligations to other people. And kindness in the Bible is when someone with power and resources lives up to, and in fact goes extravagantly beyond, their obligations to someone without power, without resources, someone in desperate need. That's what kindness is. And in the Old Testament, we see human beings showing kindness to each other, and we see God showing kindness to human beings. But human beings are never described as showing kindness to God or expressing steadfast love towards God. That's not the nature of the relationship because God is never in need. He is always the one, not only with the power and the resources and the bounty, but the one who feels his own obligations to be God to us. Because once God has entered into covenant, once he has sworn to be loyal and faithful to a people, God will always keep up his end of the deal. No matter how often his people break it, no matter how often they fall away, no matter how badly they fall into poverty, debt, and slavery, God will always hear the cry of the needy and ride to their rescue and fulfill his obligation as covenant redeemer. Kindness. In Paul's letter to Titus, he describes the coming of Christ as the moment when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. Jesus is the living, breathing expression of the kindness of God. And what we're looking forward to in this season of Advent is God showing kindness, of God appearing and fulfilling the duty of care involved in his covenant relationships. And brothers and sisters, are we not those who need care? Are we not those who are poor, in debt, enslaved, vulnerable, hungry, needy, and empty? And God has not sent Jesus to come and rebuke us and get in our faces and shout at us for our foolishness and our sin and getting ourselves into the situation. He's not come to condemn the world. He's come to redeem the world. And he invites all of us to come and find shelter under his wings, the wings of our kinsman redeemer, the very kindness of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful again for the gift of your son who comes to us in our emptiness, our famine, our death, and our despair to redeem us, to rescue us, to buy us back at unimaginable personal cost to himself. We thank you that you are God who not only makes promises, which are so easy to do, but a God who follows up and keeps those promises, who gives us far more than we could even ask or imagine. And, O oh Lord, if you've given us Christ, how will you not also with him graciously give us all things? And so we come to you in our pain, in our own brokenness, in our own bitterness, perhaps. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would shelter us beneath your wings. Help us to know that you are near, that you love us, that you have sworn never to leave us or forsake us, and that you will redeem us from every evil and bring us into your dwelling place forever at last. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. 
This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.